Hey, it's Trisha. Welcome to People Place Power, where we explore big questions around activism through the eyes of changemakers around the world. First off, thank you so much for listening to our first episode about comedian Adrian Chalpa. We absolutely loved hearing your feedback, and if you enjoyed it, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back with another full episode on September 20th. It's about how the indigenous women of Northeast India use their bodies to resist violence at the hands of the government. But till then, we're excited to bring you our first activist chat. In this series, we'll have candid conversations with activists we admire about why they do what they do. This week, I sat down with Jimena Ospina, who is currently the only undocumented trans woman attending law school in the United States. I heard of Jimena's work while we were both students at Columbia. She was a leader in immigration-related movements on campus. Today, I invited her to the studio to talk about her experience and dreams in law school and beyond. Hi, Jimena. It's so great to have you on the show. Sure. Hello. Could you just start off by introducing yourself? What should people know about you? My name is Jimena Ospina. My pronouns are she, her. I was born in Cali, Colombia. I moved to the United States when I was five years old, and I have been undocumented ever since. I was raised in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and I moved to New York when I started Columbia University. I identify as trans femme, non-binary. Okay, so could you tell me a little bit more about Cali? Like, what sights and smells and sounds do you remember from your childhood? Cali is in the mountains. It's very hot. I think one of my favorite things about Cali was the way it rains. Um, Cali has just very nice thunderstorms, and they would relax me. It's just like a downpour. It's just mm. so nice. Mm-hmm. Cali's where um, a lot of the salsa culture really lives. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of salsa playing everywhere. I myself was taught to dance salsa at a very early age. I actually tend to be the person teaching people how to dance salsa because you're not going to be in my friend group and not know how to dance salsa. That's not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the, the most remarkable things was how normal the sounds of gunshots were, I think. Mm. I think the, the sounds of gunshots was something that I kind of didn't realize I was used to until I moved to Jersey. I just think it was so different. People fighting, domestic violence. A lot of this really just happens out in the open. If I had grown up in a more privileged place, I'd be like outraged by violence. But I think that growing up in a violent place like Cali, I'm just used to violence. Okay, so once you arrived in the U.S., what stood out to you? What were your first impressions? Uh, Oh, the fact that there were houses was something that really um, was different because in, in my part of Cali, at least, all the houses touched each other and not a lot of them had like a backyard or a driveway, stuff like that. So whenever I saw like proper houses, I thought it was like, wow, a house. And I never lived in a house to this day. <laughs> I don't, I've never lived in a, in a house. I didn't really, really feel the like, the poverty of it all until high school when my dad took me to like one of his boss's pool party and this is, it was this rich white man who lived in freehold new jersey and we went to the house and i was like wow 
<laughs> people live like this every day. People live like this every day somewhere. Uh, wow. So what was it like for you and your family to adjust to life in the U.S. once you got here? I think it's, it's just the sheer suffering of my family in Colombia or just the sheer poverty of it all that really reminds me, though, of what I am fighting for. To this day, because my parents self-deported this year, I had to kind of relearn how the situation is in Colombia because I've been kind of happily neglecting it because I'm in the United States and that's just kind of the privilege I have to like not have to think about that. But with my parents there and with all these protests in the last year, I've really had to like think about just how screwed up the situation is in Colombia and how my work here relates to that. Mm-hmm. My sister had to leave the country. Um, my sister had to leave the country and then we didn't see each other for seven years. I was 13 when she left and then I was 20 when, when she came back. That was really, like, hard for me because she was the only one in my age group in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a kid when she left. When I left Colombia, it, it hurt a little, but I was such a kid. But her leaving, I just knew it would hurt. Oh, man. That sounds really tough. Um, I mean, so when something like this happens, where do you turn? I knew I had so much anger, anger that I was like, where do I place all this anger? Why were we not allowed to see each other for seven years? Eventually, I managed to place that anger on the state. (laughs) And yeah, and that anger seems well-directed given how poorly the U.S. government treats undocumented people in this country. Um, How did growing up undocumented impact you? So for like the earlier parts of my life, I didn't really understand how being undocumented impacted me up until maybe like 16. What I was really trying to make sense of was my sexuality because I didn't really come out as trans femme until I was like 20. So I struggled a lot, though, with my sexual orientation. And because Elizabeth is such a like immigrant heavy place, it, it leans conservative, honestly. It was a struggle to grow up with the hood machismo because... I just truly resented it. I didn't I didn't want to like be this masculine figure and even when we were young so many people saw masculinity as an excuse to be a bad person. <laughs> that like never felt great with me. So, no, I was very always very insecure about my masculinity. More than I ever was about my immigrant status. When I was 16, I like decided to come out and I came out as bisexual. Which is interesting because I identified as bisexual pretty much up until after I graduated high school. And then for some reason, I just started identifying as gay. When I transitioned at 20, I went back to being bisexual. Coming out as trans has been extremely liberating. How did your family and your community react to you coming out? When I came out as bi to my parents, they sent me to reparative therapy. And at that point, I knew that reparative therapy was being outlawed in certain states already. So I knew that there was a certain government implication to me going to reparative therapy, even in in New Jersey. I think me being forced to go to this treatment that in certain states was illegal, I was like, okay, so so much of this has to do with the law and with government and and about fighting for things. The the trauma of that, of course, left me like a permanent warrior. (laughs) Gosh, okay. So for our listeners, reparative therapy is basically conversion therapy in disguise. 
It's marketed as a service that helps queer individuals get rid of their queerness, but of course, it's total BS, and a lot of people who go to quote-unquote reparative therapy need actual therapy to deal with the psychological consequences of this type of thing. So Jimena, you started focusing mostly on um, LGBTQ plus issues, and when did immigration activism come into the picture for you? Well, the DREAM Act was happening in 2010, and I felt like all I could do was tell people I was undocumented. I didn't know how I could organize, how I could protest, and all, and all that was actually really scary to me. And the organizing infrastructure, particularly in immigrant rights, is nothing compared to 10 years later. The difference in the resources available or just the sheer presence of a group fighting for you it's massive. Like in 2010, I just didn't even know who to go to to fight for immigrant rights. New Jersey wasn't really known as an immigrant state. And that's the thing about the immigrant rights movement is that it's so focused on Mexicans. And so wherever the Mexicans are is where all the attention was going to. So that was obviously Texas and California in the Southwest. Okay, so it felt like the movement wasn't created around inclusion. These orgs were really in their like earlier days. Not, not capable of doing the massive outreach they do now. I think they missed me. Hmm. Frankly, they missed a lot of undocumented people. I think the immigrant rights movement, the undocumented rights movement, has grown in terms of capacity and infrastructure, in terms of their ability to reach people, their ability to provide services to people, their ability to provide free legal guidance to people has grown massively. I think ideologically, the movement is still very much stuck in 2010. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Sure. So I feel like the leaders of the movement, or at least the people making the most money, think that it's November 4, 2008, and Obama just won election. And they keep behaving as though the Democrats are a party that fights for us. And they keep directing all the momentum the movement is building to the Democratic Party. They refuse to educate their people on how, how bills are truly passed, how special interests in Washington, D.C. work, on which Democrats can actually be trusted. They, they refuse to educate their people on all that because the way that their, the movement is set up now, like I said, the infrastructure is much bigger because there's much more funding. And with that funding comes the pitfalls of the nonprofit industrial complex, which is ultimately, if we're going to give you money, don't you dare criticize Democrats. I see. So in terms of your next steps, why law? Yeah, I realized that the movement grants no credibility to anyone who is not a lawyer. (laughs) The undocumented rights movement will not really let you be a leader, will not really put you at the forefront unless you are a lawyer. And to think about how hard it is for any undocumented person to ever become a lawyer, um, how hard it is for any undocumented person to even start undergrad. So just think about how difficult it is to have a law degree so that you could be at the forefront of your own movement. One of the reasons I am doing law school is to straight up foster my own power, grow my own credibility within the movement. Because what I have found is that I only matter to the immigrant rights movement so long as I can cry. And so long as I can exploit my story of the sad trans girl, the sad, the sad transsexual who really wants to be a perfect American. So I think part of me going to law school is literally me trying to like secure power for myself, frankly. In many ways, going to law school is also about my own protection against the state. 
I just want to know what to say even if I get stopped while driving a car. I just want to have the weapon of the law all re- like ready to go. I really don't want to be the kind of person that has like, oh, I have a lawyer on call. I don't want that. <laughs> I want to be the lawyer so that I can protect myself. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad to hear that you're looking out for yourself. And I think that's a more than adequate reason for people to learn the law. It's a weapon that can be so easily wielded against you for no fault of your own. So, Jimena, now that you've started law school, tell me about your experience as the only undocumented trans woman in law school in the entire country. The reason I do call myself the only undocumented trans woman attending law school in the United States is because I searched for other undocumented trans law students or pre-law students. I did that search. I I reached out to undocumented law groups. I reached out to organizers West East Coast Florida because I didn't want to just call myself that without really letting someone else check me. And to I mean, and to this day, I'm fine if another undocumented trans woman pops out of nowhere and she's like, "Well, actually, it's it's me." Like then I'll be like, "All right, I guess I'm not the only one. That's great." But I think I emphasize that I am the only one because of just how isolating being undocumented and trans is. And I want people to know how isolating it feels. And I want people to know that I'm alone in this. I feel alone in this. So how can the rest of us stand in solidarity with you? How can we support you? For me as a person, I think people can support me as a person by donating to my um, GoFundMe for my law school. I'm still undocumented. I still don't get federal aid. And because I graduated high school in New Jersey, I don't apply for the New York Dream Act at all. So I'm just getting no type of that kind of aid and CUNY's only paying half. So I'm paying cash. (laughs) Um, So I would really appreciate um, if people donated to my GoFundMe it's gofundme.com the gofundme link is www.gofundme.com slash x-i-m-e-l-a-w if you're able to contribute you can find Timena's gofundme linked on our show notes and website and contribute what you can even a few dollars as we speak she's only three thousand dollars away from her fundraising goal which will ensure that she can complete her first year of law school Thanks for listening, and see you next week.